Welcome to the Pubs Podcast. The Pubs Podcast is brought to you by the Penn Undergraduate Biotech Society, founded at the University of Pennsylvania. This student-run podcast is dedicated to leading biotechnology developments, bringing insight about biological breakthroughs, surrounding financial landscapes, and corporate developments across the sector. I'm your co-host, Trina McCain, and together with my other co-host, John Ainsley, we have together with us Riju Daida and Sonia Mehta to talk about Biogen and the recent developments concerning their Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab. Sonia, you wanted to come to us, give us a foundation on the high-level outlook of Alzheimer's and what it really is and how does aducanumab theoretically work to combat its progression. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I'll just start off by talking about what we know about Alzheimer's disease and why it's such a big problem that everybody should really pay attention to. There were 5.8 million cases of Alzheimer's disease in the U.S. alone in 2020. Alzheimer's disease really is America's most feared disease. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. So I think this is the reason why we all should pay attention to what Alzheimer's disease is, and research should be directed to figure out what we can do in order to address this problem. So some background on Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease belongs to a class of neurodegenerative diseases called tauopathies. Tauopathies basically occur and are associated with the accumulation of tau in the brain and the spinal cord. Alzheimer's disease is the most common telepathy. It is the leading cause of dementia. Dementia is basically a form of cognitive decline that interferes with day-to-day life activities. So I think this is why Alzheimer's disease should be regarded as a neurodegenerative disease that we really need to pay attention to because it is such a leading cause of dementia. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what potentially could be the cause of Alzheimer's disease, because we're not exactly sure how Alzheimer's disease really works and what the pathology of this is like. So I think we can only talk about what some of the leading hypotheses are and what were some observations that led to the formation of these hypotheses. That a critical observation is that in Alzheimer's disease patients, in autopsies, pathologists found that there were significant aggregations of tau and amyloid beta. These are known as neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid beta plaques, respectively. What is so important about these two observations is they led to the formation of some of the leading hypotheses that actually govern clinical trial research in Alzheimer's disease today and drug development. For 20 years, the leading hypothesis was known as the amyloid beta hypothesis, and this posits that there's a protein known as amyloid precursor protein, and this can be cleaved by gamma secretase and beta secretase, which are basically enzymes that cleave amyloid precursor protein, and then that can lead to aggregations of amyloid beta in the brain. It is thought that tau hyperphosphorylation and aggregation occurs downstream to that. Many actually question this hypothesis. We don't really know much about amyloid beta in itself. It's thought that amyloid beta has a role in neural growth and repair, but we don't actually know exactly how it works and what neuroprotective effects it has versus whether we can target this and it's doing damage. Is amyloid beta aggregation and tau aggregation a cause? Is it associated with, or what role does it have in the progression of Alzheimer's disease? We can say, well, we have this observation, but we don't really know whether it's just correlated with or it is actually causing Alzheimer's disease. The amyloid beta hypothesis and the tau hypothesis are very debated and controversial aspects of Alzheimer's disease research. Uh, For our viewers, what does this mean in terms of the current state of Alzheimer's therapy? Are there any treatments out for Alzheimer's presently that utilize targeting of those phenomena? 
So currently, there are only five drugs available for Alzheimer's disease. And most of these drugs really, to be honest, don't really work that well. And that's pretty accepted within the field. Four of these drugs actually work by inhibiting acetylcholinesterase. Acetylcholine plays a role in learning and memory, and targeting that for Alzheimer's disease patients is thought to be a drug target that was utilized because acetylcholine really plays a role in learning and memory that's obviously critical to the Alzheimer's disease pathway. So if we can inhibit the breaking down of acetylcholine that is done by an enzyme known as acetylcholinesterase, it is thought that, you know, maybe that could help improve learning and memory. And yes, this was validated because four of the drugs approved for Alzheimer's disease, actually four out of the five, 80% are targeting this enzyme. But to be honest, it's not that these drugs work exceptionally well. And there's actually a lot of adverse effects like dizziness, nausea, and vomiting that actually can get really out of control. And so many patients have to be put off these treatments in a couple of months. The other drug, the one out of five, is targeting NMDA. It's a receptor associated with glutamate in the brain, and glutamate has a role in memory formation as well, specifically a process known as long-term potentiation that is known to be involved in the pathway of memory generation. This, again, is not really that amazing of a, a therapeutic either because it has really bad side effects and patients have to be put off of it in a couple of months I think this is definitely why aducanumab was considered to be such a breakthrough at first. Finally, the amyloid beta hypothesis, there's some evidence to suggest that this may work. But after we saw some of the slapdown that came for the aducanumab drug, a lot of hope definitely is diminished in the minds of many of the Alzheimer's disease patients and researchers who have been trying to figure out what we could do to target this disease. But I think that there still remains a lot of promising research on multiple different hypotheses that we need to consider. That's really interesting. I mean, it just goes to show how complex of an issue that treating neurodegenerative diseases in general really is. The amount of resources that even when dedicated to tackling these diseases, it really takes time and a lot of expenses in order to figure out what's really going on at the bottom of these. It's an interesting kind of trade-off you brought up, Sonia. It's kind of this tragic trade-off of quality of life versus extension of life and severity of disease. Between those, it's, it's kind of an interesting balance where sometimes if a patient is going to have greatly decreased and diminished quality of life versus, you know, adding a month or two to their life or whatever it may be, or decreasing the severity of the disease, sometimes it's just not worth it given the kind of, you know, unintended toxicity. To be quite honest, I think that the question of extending life or quality of life significantly has actually still not been within the current therapeutics, the current five therapeutics that exist. I don't think that we have the ability to do either of these two. Therapeutics themselves don't work that well for Alzheimer's disease patients. And we really need new therapeutics so that we can have actually some of those options because we really don't know how much these drugs are actually extending the lives or the quality of lives of the patients who are on them. They have really adverse side effects and little is known to actually support how their mechanisms of action work. Again, a couple of months is what you see a lot of Alzheimer's disease patients for being on these treatment paradigms before they're completely switched or, or taken off these therapies. Yeah, and an um, interesting point that you brought up actually a bit earlier that's relevant to this is the whole idea of amyloid beta antibody therapeutics that have been developed and are currently in the works. A lot of the debate that's centralized on whether or not that is what we should be targeting, that's really important because a lot of time, money, expenditures have been put into current monoclonal antibodies that target amyloid beta plaques, but a lot of research has been actually questioning whether that is kind of valid. 
because we see a lot of of instances in neurodegenerative disease therapeutics itself where amyloid beta presence is not actually correlated to just Alzheimer's, like in Parkinson's, in several other diseases that affect neural breakdown, we see elevated presences of amyloid beta plaques or tau. You kind of get into the, you know, correlation versus causation discussion and argument that many are having around amyloid beta plaques and these kind of aggregated amyloid fibril structures. To build more on that, John, what was really the idealized solution that a Duke Neumab was trying to bring to tackle this issue? I guess, firstly, just a little bit about, about the drug. Educanumab is a monoclonal antibody. You know that from the last three letters of the name, MAB stands for monoclonal antibody. And how monoclonal antibodies work is that uh, there's kind of two, two distinct regions of an antibody. So one is the constant region. We call that the FC region. And if you've seen an antibody, it kind of looks like a Y. And the long kind of narrow region is the FC region, and that's constant. And I'll get into what that does. And then the two kind of arms, those, those both comprise the variable region. And on the tops of those arms are called antigen binding sites. So how an antibody functions in your immune system or when it's administered as a monoclonal antibody. So it comes along and it has antigen that it's, you know, actually small epitopes on an antigen that's already meant to bind to. So it will come along and attach itself and bind to that antigen for which it is specific. So that's what the, F, that's what the uh, FAB or the variable region does. And once it's bound, then it has its little tail sticking out, which is the FC region. And what that tail is doing is it's going to bind to and recruit effector immune cells like macrophages, neutrophils, and K cells to come and kill the cell to which the antibody is bound to. And this is called antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. It's incredibly important for fighting off many pathogens and and also cancer and any non-self antigen that's found in the body. There's a number of different antibodies, and I won't bore you all too much, but this one is IgG1, which does a great job at recruiting a number of effector cells that are really important and also activating the complement system. Kind of quick background on different types of antibodies. I mean, for example, if you wanted an antibody that just binds to a target and kind of inhibits any receptor ligand interaction or receptor ligand binding and essentially blocks that pathway, you go from something more like an IgG4. Uh, an IgG4, for example, doesn't really activate the complement system. It doesn't bind to many innate effectors that well. It really is great for something like a checkpoint blockade, which it kind of just inhibits any interaction of a certain pathway that could be uh, you know, pathogenic. So aducanumab, what it targets, as we kind of mentioned, are these amyloid eta polymeric aggregated structures. And what, what's important to kind of realize here is that supposedly they've been able to selectively target aggregated amyloid beta only and not target the monomeric form of amyloid beta that's found in healthy neuronal structures throughout the brain. So that, that's really important that kind of they're able to target these aggregated structures and, and kind of versions of the or forms of, of this protein in a pan way, but not do it in a way that would target healthy, normal functioning, you know, amyloid beta. So that's interesting. And essentially, like I said before, how this would work, you know, on a cellular level, and I'll get into the blood brain barrier kind of nuances here, but how this work on a cellular level is essentially the FAB region, the variable region of, you know, the antibody would bind to the target and that target is amyloid beta. So these, am- these aggregated amyloid beta structures that's found in the brain. And then with the little tail sticking out and an immunologist would kill me if they heard this kind of a <laughs> grossly oversimplified description. But with the, with the FC region that, that's sticking out, right, that constant region, that is telling, hey, you know, immune effector cells, hey, macrophages, neutrophils, and, uh, and NK cells, 
I bound to a target. And so bind to me and let's kill this target, right? So then NK cells, macrophage neutrals, whatever it may be, would then bind to that antibody, which is bound to that target antigen and carry out its effector function, which means killing it. But there are kind of two interesting things to bring up here. So one is the blood-brain barrier. It's known that, yes, immune cells can sometimes pass the blood-brain barrier, but they're not as common as, say, you know, if you were just in blood or even in mucosal tissues, you know, the, the, the blood-brain barrier is an interesting thing, and, and the brain is definitely a very privileged biological region that isn't as homogenous as some other parts of the body. There's kind of questions around even the possibility of real efficacy and possibility of that MOA, meaning that mechanism of action kind of working correctly in the blood-brain barrier. And then two, all what all of this does is, is you're releasing a ton of, of cytokine and chemokines. So a ton, many cytokines and chemokines, right? You, you stimulate the, the uh, macrophages, they're secreting cytokine. You stimulate the NK cells, they're secreting, you know, perforin and granzymes and getting things riled up. You stimulate the complement system. Th th I mean, this is all you, you are creating a cytokine storm potentially, right? And if you just said this for any kind of immunotherapy, yes, you could, you could say, well, John, this is true for any immunotherapy. What, like, what do you mean? Why is it different? That's true. But the only issue is, is that this is localized in the brain, which, which is a delicate region, especially when it comes to cytokine and chemokine secretion and production and existence, because more and more research is coming out that these cytokines and chemokines are not only important for immune cell signaling, but also key mediators in neuronal signaling, right? So brain activity and, and neurons essentially, you know, nervous structures talking to each other. This gets into the brain swelling that Sonia was talking about. You know, a, a kind of potential cause of this brain swelling is this storm of cytokines that, that you're releasing off that, yes, may not be as big of a deal in, you know, when this is administered for cancer patients. When it's localized to the brain, it could present you with different kind of pro-inflammatory, the presence of a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines and, and just different proteins going on that, that may uh, be detrimental to, to the patient's health. That's pretty much how monoclonal antibodies typically work. It's meant to reduce and eliminate aggregated amyloid beta structures. And this kind of gets into, well, hey, are they even the cause of this neurodegeneration, right? Is, is this part of the pathogenesis of neurodegeneration? Or is this kind of a byproduct of the already happening neurodegeneration? That isn't totally clear. People are working on further elucidating this question. But essentially, for this drug to be efficacious, it would like to be or should be that amyloid beta aggregates cause neurodegeneration and not having them be a byproduct. I think this is a really good segue into what the FDA thought. FDA pretty resoundingly rejected the efficacy of a ducanumab in targeting those those amyloid beta aggregates. Riju, I, I know you were looking into this. Uh, what what do we know about the FDA review that occurred after the phase three trials were ended, and well, why was the rejection so resounding concerning the efficacy of a ducanumab? Those are both incredibly important questions to ask. And so I think to focus our scope, we should address what occurred in studies 301 and 302 and what from those studies led to the stark differences between the FDA review and the independent advisory panel review of a Ducanumab. So I'll kind of counterintuitively begin with study 302, in part because this was Biogen's main trial that actually elevated a Ducanumab's prospects to national scrutiny and landed Biogen the opportunities to meet four or five times 
programs throughout the past several years with the FDA itself, eventually leading to their failed drug proposal this last November. So Study 302 hit all of the endpoints, both primary and secondary, that Biogen was attempting to surpass. And it did so despite the missing data that were not collected by the company because of the results of a March 2019 futility analysis test. So this test basically stated that Biogen wasn't following all the initial assumptions of the phase three clinical trials themselves, and thus had to prematurely stop the trials until those errors were corrected. Study 301 in contrast, was a failed trial. It did not yield successful results in that it didn't meet any of the primary and secondary endpoints. And also in the other factors that the trials tested, it failed as well because in study 301, the amount of amyloid beta plaque and tau tangle reduction was significantly less than the amount that occurred in study 302. And so just a quick background on the primary endpoint scale that Biogen used, which was the CDRSB, or the Clinical Dementia Rating Sum of Boxes Scale. So this scale is considered the gold standard against which all anti-dementia, anti-Alzheimer's treatments have been measured since its inception, which was around 10 years ago. And this scale is crucial because of the multidimensional approach it takes in measuring cognitive function. It uses six different criteria, which are orientation, community affairs, home and hobbies, judgment and problem solving, memory, and personal care. So essentially, it's a thorough, robust mechanism that trials use frequently to gauge prospective Alzheimer's treatments as Biogen did. So now I want to address the interesting question of why was there such an initially strong backlash from the independent advisory panel with regards to aducanumab? Why did they think that the antibody wasn't qualified for FDA approval? This panel's decision, mind you, it was pretty legitimate. The 11 members on it included physicians, public health authorities, healthcare administrators, university faculty, all of whom had an unbiased take on the potential effects aducanumab could have had if released to the general public by the FDA. And so I think a significant portion of that belief just stemmed from their perception that they were being slighted, that the FDA was almost trying to hide or ignore the pretty clear evidence from study 301 that didn't show efficacy and instead only regard the positive study 302 as like an outright truth. I actually have a quote here from the FDA document where they reviewed aducanumab that sort of clarifies why the panelists felt confused and had such pushback against the antibody. So the quote goes, the rapid progressor analysis indicated that a small imbalance in the number of rapid progressing patients in the high dose arm in study 301 had a disproportionate impact on the estimate of the treatment effect using the primary analysis method. An examination of dosing in study 301 indicates that patients with higher exposure to the 10 milligram per kilogram dose in study 301 had similar responses to patients in study 302. These two factors contribute to the overall understanding of study 301 and together do not meaningfully detract from the persuasiveness of study 302. Wow, that was quite a mouthful. So they, the FDA essentially didn't have an outright rejection of a Duke Newmap's efficacy. Rather, this quote it actually demonstrated a hesitance to full-on deny the aducanumab drug based on just the negative findings of study 301. So essentially, in the quote I just read, and also throughout their aducanumab summary itself, the FDA was quick to point out two things. So number one, that study 302 had truly robust positive outcomes. So they frequently cited the statistically significant difference in cognitive decline between placebo and drug patients. And again, they measured this using the cognitive function test that Biogen 
use, which was the CDRSB, or Clinical Dementia Rating Sum of Boxes Scales. And then the second thing that the FDA was quick to point out was that Biogen essentially made realizations after conducting study 301 that the data were somewhat skewed. And this was both the FDA and Biogen claim because of a small subset of people who, even with the higher dosage amount of 10 milligrams per kilogram, showed a faster rate of cognitive decline. They essentially attributed this to irregular times of delivery and other discrepancies in data collection. So with these two ideas in mind, the FDA then claimed that, barring the incongruencies in data collection, and instead taking into account the results that did show benefits, they essentially said that both studies, 301 and 302, did contribute to a meaningful phase 3 trial that with tweaking that I'm sure they'll allow Biogen to continue throughout 2021, they say that it does show future promise. So yeah, this entire regulatory process was quite unique in its outcomes and decisions. It really seemed almost as if the FDA were somewhat desperate for a breakthrough. Admittedly, they haven't actually had a success in Alzheimer's treatments, or in any case, treatments that mitigate the effects of Alzheimer's since 2003, when the last drug approved for Alzheimer's was released to the general public. Right. That, that is interesting. And, and I mean, it's essentially the situation that you have is these two large scale studies, one of which seemed to show positive efficacy signal for this drug, this second of which showed the opposite. Interesting. Your kind of explanation of at first the FDA, you know, was leaning towards a more positive outlook and take on on, on the trial situation. But having that being followed up with the advisory board, that being independent of the FDA, very negative kind of scathing review of, of, uh, of the trial progress. So it's interesting. I think, you know, this really kind of begs the question of what does this mean for Biogen and what does this mean for the larger neurodegeneration therapeutic market? Shunda, if you don't mind, we'd kind of love to learn a little bit more about, yeah, what this means for both the company itself in terms of market value and just future and then just the general market. I mean, Biogen has long been touted as one of the bastions of the biotech industry. For the fifth year in a row, it's been recognized by the Dow Jones Sustainable Index as the top biotech company in the world. And so this just shows the market affinity for Biogen and trust in its structure, and maybe lends an ear towards the reason why the FDA were so, I'm not going to put a strong label as compliant, but really inclined to, to trust the efficacy of a Duke-Nuimab. The global market for neurodegenerative disorder therapeutics is predicted to grow at a compounded annual growth rate of around 7.21% over the next 10 years. So we see there's still demand in this challenging market. However, we have seen a, a lot of the larger therapeutic manufacturers, I mean, you look at your Pfizer's and these large biopharma companies are starting to minimize the amount of investiture into neurodegenerative disorder therapeutics because of the amount of resources that it requires in order to provide some form of efficacy hasn't really been showcasing a lot of actual practical returns when it comes to marketing of working therapeutics. However, there are still efforts, and this is really shown in the recent partnership of the Alzheimer's Disease Data Initiative, which released a new Alzheimer's-specific workbench to foster global research, innovation, and accelerate breakthroughs in Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-related diseases. So there's still this overall demand because of the lack of therapeutics on the market for an Alzheimer's therapeutic. However, I think a lot of these corporations are really recognizing the amount of resources that's required. And I think a lot of the push moving forward may be slightly tilted more towards the academia aspect rather than industry-based research. However, for Biogen, this really has been a kind of a tough time. 
especially compounded with 2020 revenues. I mean, I'm sure everyone, if they're following the stock market and following Biogen, saw the 44% rise following the positive Duke Numab news post phase three trials up to a stock price of 355.63, as I think was the high. And then right after we saw a 33% drop price after closing of, I believe this was Thursday of last week to 242.51. And that value is pretty consistent with a yearly steady value of Biogen, I think really just talks and speaks to the longstanding stability of Biogen as a company, although they have seen large fluctuations in price historically as a result of certain therapeutic releases. Now, over 2020, they've seen a general decrease in revenue due to the patent on Tecfidera expiring, being a large factor in this decrease of revenue, as well as with the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Tecfidera is a therapeutic targeting multiple sclerosis treatment. Recently, Biogen has been looking to extend their market dominance with Tecfidera with their development of Vumerity, which is a similar multiple sclerosis treatment. However, it has a more tolerable effect on its patients. And so with this expiration of the patent for Tecfidera, it, it kind of raises the question of what is Biogen's next move? A lot of biotech companies in general really have one or two or, or really like a couple, if you look at the larger ones, a couple therapeutics that really drive sales and really define what the successes of that corporation is. And Tecfidera was that for Biogen. So moving forward, it's going to be really interesting to see how this affects the outlook of Biogen because the generic status, I mean, I believe uh, Myelin Pharmaceuticals is looking into the generic manufacturer, Tecfidera's chemical compound. And this is really going to, to put the pressure on Biogen in terms of the necessitation of innovation. However, Biogen does have some promising therapeutics in the pipeline. We have BIB, BIIB 059, which is anti-BDCA2, which is meant to treat systemic lupus erythematosus. We have BIIB 067, also known as Torfersen, which is a new approach to ALS treatment, which early trials show efficacy. And we have BIIB 093, which is meant to treat large hemispheric infarctions and has recently shown safety in phase two trials and is entering phase three trials presently to prove efficacy. And also Biogen is looking to expand to the gene therapy market, which we see has been burgeoning as of lately and shows a lot of great potential in new innovations. Now, Biogen also has the move if they want to focus more on Alzheimer's as well, understanding that, you know, aducanumab may have not been therapeutic that it was touted to be, they may look towards possible acquisition. There's a lot of talk in terms of what, where Biogen might go with this, uh, whether it might be partnered corporations or perhaps other corporations taking a more novel approach to the research of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's treatment and potential targets. And so th that is yet to be seen. Really, a final note is Biogen is really long been touted as one of the leading, if not the leading, biotech corporations in the world. Even though we see this larger taxation burden due to Tecfidera's generic status, a decrease in revenues, an increase in liabilities through R&D spending because of the Duke new that rush, we still see stock price outperforming expectations consistently, even through these decreasing revenues. The decrease in Tecfidera sales has been less than 20% over the past year, which is not too considerable as yet and can be an indication of further decreases in revenue or certain market exclusivity of consumer preference towards tech that we have yet to see. Biogen has the, the infrastructure, the technology, and the overall capital to pivot towards successful continuation of their innovation. Honestly, the jury isn't out, and I think this could be a defining moment for Biogen into the future to really showcase the potential to either skyrocket in profits or start a slow decline. The next fiscal year is really going to be 
the turning point where we see a lot of these things occur. So the upside for an approval of aducanumab is obvious, right? I mean, the stock already jumped quite a bit on, on positive news, and then it fell a bit on more negative news. So the upside is obvious, but but I we I kind of wonder what the downside is, like as you get into, right? Like how critical is this one drug to Biogen success and appreciation and market value, given the number of other therapeutics that they have and n- number of other drugs that they have in the pipeline? So, so it's interesting to weigh the two, especially when, when you consider that, you know, this last kind of update from the advisory review board and the last part of this phase three did not go very well. It does seem that there's probably a higher likelihood than not that this drug will not be approved. I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, it was first in trials in 2007. I'm not exactly sure to the specifics, but it was out of trials and now it's back into trials, kind of resurrected. So it's kind of a 13 and probably a few years in preclinical. So it's, you know, almost 15 years spent working on this. So so it it will be interesting to see, you know, how this actually plays out. Great. Well, thanks, Shinda. I think this kind of, uh, you know, is a nice segue into what, what are the implications here for the larger uh, neurodegenerative therapeutic market? And, you know, how important of a player is aducanumab and similar therapeutics in the space? Or are there really different approaches and maybe even contrasting, you know, kind of schools of thought? I recently looked into this one corporation where I was doing a search of potential acquisitions for Biogen if they wanted to pivot on their Alzheimer's therapeutic development. And and I saw this corporation called Anavex Life Sciences. Their drug, which is currently in phase three trials, phase three and simultaneously long-term phase two B trials called Anavex 273. And they they take a novel approach where they kind of um, stray away from the fact that amyloid beta aggregates are the causing factor for Alzheimer's and really want to target cellular and mitochondrial stress. Recently, they've been showing efficacy in not only Alzheimer's, but Rett syndrome, as well as Parkinson's disease. So I really think that there's potential in looking at some alternative methods of targets when it comes to treating these neurodegenerative diseases. To be a little bit broader and like recognizing all the different targets that are currently under process for Alzheimer's disease patients. There's numerous hypotheses being tested. The main ones are obviously still the amyloid beta hypothesis and the tau hypothesis. So there's many projects that focus on amyloid beta immunotherapies, tau immunotherapies, vaccines that actually inject tau so that you can make these antibodies to tau. And also there's like a bunch of other hypotheses in development, like the virus hypothesis that there's viral associated responses that in part lead maybe to AD. I think right now there's over 120 agents that are being explored potentially for drug candidates for Alzheimer's disease in clinical trials right now. And it really is kind of remarkable to me. I mean, not remarkable because you do see it in other diseases, but maybe not to the same extent. And what I'm talking about is the fact that you can have almost completely contrasting approaches or, you know, schools of thought by kind of leaders in the space saying, oh, I think X causes AD, right? And then someone else could be saying, no, 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 I actually think X is very important in neuroprotection. And I think Y causes AD, right? And and it's just kind of crazy how, you know, you're almost having these opposite kind of approaches. And also just, I mean, the variability and diversity of approach is really cool. You do see that in other spaces as well. So that's not like unique to neurodegeneration. For cancer, immunotherapy and and other kind of recent innovations and approaches has advanced the space, you know, so much in the past 20 years, let's say. It's it's like an entirely new field now. I mean, it's incredible. Whereas neurodegenerative kind of therapeutics have not seen as large of almost a quantum leap in treatment and, and kind of the innovation of the paradigm. And it's kind of unfortunate that there hasn't been breakthroughs like there have been in, in cancer. But it is really interesting to kind of look at the diversity of the space. 
you actually briefly touched upon the wide variety of attacks that are being deployed on neurodegenerative Alzheimer's treatments. There's been quite a lot of insight into tau therapeutics. Tau truly is interesting because the neurofibrillary tangles impact on neuronal damage really has been a focal point of study in a lot of Alzheimer's treatments that have been in the pipeline and are currently in the pipeline. The methods that you mentioned of mitochondrial and cellular stress, those are sure novel insights, but I think tau therapeutics that have been currently in the trial process do demonstrate promise in stemming neurodegeneration or the breakdown of neuronal damage. I was looking into a vaccine that induces antibodies called ADVAC or AADVAC. ADVAC actually had finished a phase two trial in April of 2020. Its target is preventing neuronal damage, which, as a lot of our viewers know, is caused by the aggregation of neurofibrillary tangles. And so this phase two trial demonstrated actually nearly 58% decrease in neurodegenerative processes comparing the placebo and the people who received the actual vaccine. And so an interesting therapeutic process that we have to look into is mitigating the damage that is done to our neural pathways by tau treatments. I also think that there needs to be a lot more attention directed towards the tau seeding hypothesis as well. Many revised the amyloid beta hypothesis and thought that actually, you know, maybe tau has a direct implication. That sort of hypothesis has been associated with a gene known as a microtubule-associated protein tau. Regulation of this gene has been thought to be involved in the regulation of hyperphosphorylation of tau, which can lead to accumulation of tau in the brain. So there's been a lot of research that's been directed to targeting tau in the brain and tau aggregates, both intracellular and extracellular. And I think there's a lot of promising developments in that field. Yeah. And I also think that it's really interesting to learn about the vaccine directed approach because that's what's been used, you know, to actually generate these immunotherapies and these antibodies that are currently under development, like Biogen's aducanumab and many others. The interesting thing is, well, what do you do in order to make those antibodies and you inject like a mouse or another animal with tau, and then you wait till they produce antibodies to that and then you keep on working on those antibodies in order to actually get them to be able to be administered in humans. So we have both potential for like human-based antibodies or like mouse-based antibodies that are generated in response to tau. I think it's really interesting that they're also taking the approach to, to directly just inject the antigen and so that the patient can make antibodies to tau in that way as well. The main debate, I feel, is, well, does this even work or what hypothesis should we actually pursue? Because if you think about it, essentially, we can make an antibody to tau, perhaps if we could make a like good vaccine at tau, because that shows that we can target tau in general. But does that even like have an effect on Alzheimer's disease? And it's likely that we'll see failures of a lot of different classes of drugs together. For example, if the vaccine fails, maybe the uh, like antibody will fail in general compared to other types of therapeutics. And have we even reached the root of the problem? Have we even gotten to the hypothesis that could actually potentially lend us the best drugs? That is an interesting point you you bring up about, you know, the uniformity of failure, right? So, you know, say if AB is not a viable target, right, then all of those drugs may fail. What's also important to note is you're, you're targeting different epitopes on the larger antigen that is amyloid beta, or you're targeting different variants of amyloid beta. So it's not totally uniform, but to a degree, you know, there definitely is some uniformity. And I, I think another thing that has to be considered is I know uh, in certain developing therapeutics, we've seen differences in a response based off of the phenotyping of these individuals. And we have to take into consideration how much precision medicine is going to play a role in this. We've seen a larger impact of the field when it comes to 
things like cancer therapeutics and, and tumor phenotyping. You know, moving forward, it, it might dictate a lot of the variance and efficacy between different therapeutics where certain genetic markers may indicate certain factors of, let's say, tau or or AB aggregation being the main predicators of Alzheimer's, or or we could see certain targets be applicable or not based off of based off these precision medicine determinants. I mean, really, the defining factor of Alzheimer's therapy, I think, moving forward, is just how much we don't know and how much of the field is up for debate. I think this really adds to the intrigue when it comes to the field, because moving forward, really, anything's up for grabs. And we could see an innovation tomorrow that is completely contrary to everything that's been discussed in the past decades, and and it could be ethical. We simply just don't know. It's a good thing we're able to experiment and, and try and develop a lot of different things and expand on a lot of present hypotheses. But obviously, it's also a bad thing because it's hampering therapeutic releases. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, it's such, such an important field given the kind of incidence rate and as Sana got into and how many people this disease unfortunately affects and therefore it'd be huge for, you know, the, the whole world really for some efficacious treatment to come along. So to end it off, thanks to you all for listening to this episode of the Pubs Podcast. Please like and follow our podcast stay up to date with the latest biotech developments. If you would like to connect with the Penn Undergraduate Biotech Society ourselves, please reach out to upenn.pubs at gmail.com. I'll just let everyone else here plug their emails as well. Uh, read you. My email address is daughterreach at seas.upenn.edu. So that's D-A-T-T-A-R-H-A at seas.upenn.edu. Mine's mehsanya at wharton.upenn.edu. So M-E-H-S-A-N-Y-A at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks, guys. Feel free to, to reach me at J Ainsley. It's J-A-I-N-S-L-I-E at sas.upenn.edu. And you can reach me at my first name, C-H-U-N-D-A, Chunda, at sas.upenn.edu. Until next time, thank you for listening.